Miss Caroline Pounds for reading our focus text this morning. Caroline is a member of our student ministry, and I hope that um, you've enjoyed seeing this morning um, some youth that have helped us to greet this morning and just helping wanted them to be a part of this service, um, and just so thankful for all that God is doing, not only in our youth um, uh, coming out of high school camp, but also last week, as Tracy mentioned, in our kids' camp. God is just doing some amazing things uh, with uh, our students and with our children, and I, that just fires me up. And um, that's what we're going to talk about this morning. We're going to spend some time talking about um, just... God's grand story, and I have I've really enjoyed preparing for this because, man, I love seeing God on the move, don't you? Like, I love seeing things where you walk away and you're like, how did that happen? It has to be God. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. If this is your first time um, to visit with us this morning, we're so thankful that, you, uh, that you're here, that you're worshiping with us. Uh, my name is Ben Stokes. I'm the associate pastor uh, here at Harmony Hill, and uh, I am excited uh, to bring the word uh, this morning. And uh, so, also looking forward to to next week as well. I I love this summer. I don't like it this hot, right? I'm not, you know, I don't. I didn't want to live in a desert. I didn't even. I look around and trees shouldn't even be growing, right? But but they are. Um, but it's so hot. But it is the Fourth of July, right? And so I love the summer. Love going to the lake. Love camping and all that comes with it. Interestingly enough, though, it's not, we celebrate um, the, the adoption of the Declaration of Independence right on the 4th of July, but you know that it was this day in history, 1976, July 2nd, that um, actually the Continental Congress, they voted for independence, and then it was two days later, and then they all adopted it, but it's just, it's interesting, right, when you look back over history and how knowing little, small, intricate details of the past can really alter what we see today, right? It'll help us know our place, know what we're supposed to do, what thing, why things are the way that they are. And that's true, really, on a, a personal level, too, is right, is that as we, as individuals, some of us want to know more about our family history and the family past. And when we do, it helps us make sense of, oh, this is why things are the way that they are. This is what I should be doing. This is what I was made for. This is what I was cut for. In fact, knowing the history, um, our past history, can sometimes motivate people uh, to do and overcome obstacles that they never thought would be possible otherwise. There is one thing that's true is that there is great power in understanding the full scope and the full story of what's going on. And in our text that, uh, that we're going to focus on this morning, the text that Caroline read, um, it's an Old Testament passage. And most likely a guy by the name of Apeth, he wrote this passage. It is, it's set up in a way where he uses stories to describe what is going on. It's actually the longest historical Psalms in the book of Psalms. It's, I think, I believe 72 chapters. And the majority of that, all of it, minus the eight verses that we're going to look at this morning, all recount Israel's story. And in it, we're going to see, or you can read it and you'll see, that it, it highlights the highs and the lows. The highs being God's mercy and grace towards people, and the lows being Israel's unfaithfulness and their rebellion to God. Now, this Psalms, we will see this morning, it, does, it has huge implications for how we are living today as we will d 
dive into that story and see how to navigate that. And that being that it's this. It's the main purpose, I think, of these eight verses in our time this morning is that God is currently unfolding his story of redemption. And we, his church, you, Christ followers, we are main characters in that story of redemption. His church, the chosen, the ones that have stepped out from death to life, once we, we walk, we leverage all of our days to that end to live out this story of redemption that is unfolding all around us. Now I'm going to kind of let the cat out of the bag early because I want you to kind of be prepared for this. I hope that it kind of builds up to this. But at the end of our time this morning, we're going to be left to answer a question. Are we going to choose to be main characters in this story? Or are we going to be like some in the past who have chosen to live for themselves, that have chosen rebellion? And each one of these choices has two totally different outcomes. The first one ends in us living, or the one that we, we just totally strike out and we totally choose not to get involved. We're going to live for ourselves, right? That's what it's going to turn to. We're going to live for our mission and our purposes. But if we understand if we pick, hey, I am going to, I'm going to pay attention to what's going on around me. I'm going to look for God and opportunities at work. Well, then we're going to start see that we're actually partnering with God to bring people from death to life and teaching them to leverage everything that they are to make God's kingdom known while they're here on earth. And so I want us to look at verse 1 through 3, and I want us to look at the plot that we're currently in. Like, this is the story that we're in. Verse 1 through 3 in Psalm 78, it reads, Give ear, O, o my people, to my teaching. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from old, things that we have known and heard and that our fathers have told us. Apeth, he starts this psalms, the very beginning, like, give ear to me. Like, pay attention. Um, I lived uh, in Africa for a couple years. I lived with a people group called the Fulani, and they spoke a language called Fafulde. I love their term for pay attention. It literally translated, hit your ears to me. Like, pay attention to what I'm about to say because this is really important. Because, as I mentioned, Apeth is going to walk through the story of Israel, and the story of Israel is actually our story today. And so this morning, he is saying, let's pay attention, and we cannot forget about this cosmic story of redemption that is unfolding all around us. In fact, this is an old story. This is a story that started long ago, and the reality is, is that we need to be reminded of that, but we also need to, te to teach the next generation about this story of redemption and, and also how it has been initiated by God. Now, this story starts on the very first page in the very first sentence of our Bible. Genesis 1-1 reads, in the beginning, I'm, that's right. Okay, I'm really glad you all answered that or Pastor Todd would really have his work cut out. But, um, <laughs> yes, it's in the beginning, God. And that right there tells us that God is the author of this story. You know, the Bible is, in fact, a book about one thing. It has a lot of other counterparts to it, but the book as a whole is about a God who is on a mission to redeem that which was lost, the crown jewel of his creation, back and bring him back into the state, 
into the garden, into his presence. And we see that in Genesis 1, how he began to, he created the world, and then he created mankind, crown jewel of his creation, plopped them inside. They were living perfect relationship. And then we know in Genesis 3 that they chose their own way. They chose to sin against God. They chose their own will. And as a result, their relationship with God was broken. And then in Genesis 3.15, God's mission begins. And the, every story in the Old Testament actually builds up. We see this mission mounting. I tell people all the time in my discipleship groups, in the Bible, in the Old Testament specifically, and in the New Testament as well, there's always a story behind the story. We know that Moses is not actually leading the people out of, the, of Egypt, right? We see God's God moving behind. There's always God's story behind the story of what's going on. And those stories... God's stories are moving to that climactic in the Old Testament of the arrival of Jesus. And he came. And it's through his sacrificial death, burial, resurrection that we now, he's the gateway of how we can go back to the, pres- into the presence of God. But it didn't stop there, right? No, he actually, Jesus, inaugurated his church, equipped us with the Holy Spirit, and now we can partner with him through his church, now people can come to know Christ and be among his redeemed. And this is the story that we're now main characters in. And that's it. that is exciting to me. And there's truth in your outline. The best way for us to stay in character to God's story that is unfolding all around us is to remember the many acts of love that God has performed on our behalf. See, knowing this plot line helps me stay grounded each day. It keeps me from sin. It keeps me from drifting towards those comforts in life, which inevitably leads to a life of complacency. It also helps me to know that and there is purpose in my life. And in verse 11, though, it reads, we find out that one of the main reasons that the Israelites fell into the sin is that they forgot what God had done. They forgot. They became oblivious to what God has done. But verse 3 through 4 tells us that when we understand and we're familiar with God's story, we're familiar with what's going on, then we can truly live out our role in God's mission. So you see the plot line here. And now we have a role to live in this mission. And that's described in verses 4 through 6. Let's read those verses in Psalm 78, 4 through 6. It says, We will not hide them from their children, but tell, of, tell to the coming generations the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and wonders all that he has done. He established a testimony in Jacob, and he appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers to teach to their children, that the next children might know them, the children yet unborn, and arise and tell them to their children. Now, it's clear in those passages that our primary, our primary, primary role in this story, it's not to keep our faith to ourselves. It's not to keep what we have and what we've learned through Scripture to ourselves. We have to tell the next generation. We have to open our mouths. We have to speak. It sounds elementary, but that's what it's saying here. It's also not saying this. Here's what it's not saying. It's not saying that we accomplish this task of investing in the next by looking to things such as methods and programs 
to accomplish this end. See, if we were looking at through and trying to accomplish uh, investing in the next through methods and programs, we would have already done it because we have those. But see, to me, that is, that is temporary answers to eternal problems. And actually, when we, when we do that, we are actually outsourcing our responsibility to personally invest because these verses that we read, they have a very personal feel to them. Like the, you can tell, it's, it's someone that's there, it's living, it's present. There's a personal feel to it, and we don't ever want to outsource that personal aspect of investing in the next. It's a personal call. We have to go about it like Jesus went about it. How did Jesus go about it? Well, Paul says in Philippians 2, starting at 2, 7, he said, He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. And he, through that, he was obedient. And because he humbled himself by becoming obedient, even obedient to the point of death. Investing in others first takes humility. We have to incarnate ourselves with the next generation, which means we have to be one with the next generation. We have to live life with them, be right beside them. We cannot invest in the next at a distance. That's not what Jesus did. He was there. He came to be with us, which means we have to get to know and contextualize the next generation. Like, what is their culture? What is their language? Um, how do we relate to them? What are bridges that we can lay out that will shorten the gaps between us and them that will help us plant the gospel in their hearts? So we do life with them. But it, we don't just walk through life with them. Uh, verse, verse 4 actually says we teach them. And the first thing that we teach them, we teach them who God is. Verse 4 reads, we teach them the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might. It is our task to tell our children, to tell our students that everything begins and ends with God. We are not the center of the world. Our children are not the center of the world. Christ is the highest value. That's, that's the value. Now, having a deep understanding of God, if we can in, plant this in the next generation, if, if we can teach them about his priorities, about his nature, then that will help them orient their lives in a way that will help them make sense to all the things that they're seeing take place around them. I'll tell you what it will also do, as they know God, it will also help them not to um, say prayers that only help their own personal gain and their personal plan and their personal mission. Instead, as they learn who God is, they orient their life in a way that will point them and set them up in the best place to leverage all that they have to make God's kingdom known while they're here on this earth. See, God is orchestrating this grand story of redemption all around us, all the time. And what's crazy about it, and I love, I love breaking down people's individual paths in life and how they weave together to make a whole. And that's what God is doing. He's using our individual stories to, to, to write a story of redemption across mankind's heart. And it's incredibly purposeful. But we have to teach that because we know that if we don't teach them, the world will, right? The world's always teaching. 
See, the world teaches them to rely on government. Put your hope in government. Put your hope in money. Put your hope in power, in sexuality, in pleasure. The world is always teaching. And if we sit here with a blind eye or like a bump on the log and we do nothing, who is going to mold and shape the next characters that are coming on stage in God's redemptive mission? What will our church look like in 50 years if we don't invest? Think about that reality. We have to be actively teaching the next generation. We have to teach them the depth of who God is. And if we don't, I can tell you with assurance that that will only lead to greater evil and greater heartache. We have to teach the next generation that God must be the center of their life. The second thing that we teach them um, in verse 4, we teach them what God has done. Verse 4 says, we teach them the wonders that he has done. In other words, we teach them that, that God, what, it, what God has done, we teach them the stories. Like I mentioned, Apeth, he's here. He is recounting all of the stories, the highlights of Israel after verse 8. That's what we must do. Like We need to tell the next generation. We need to show them how God brought the Israelites out of Egypt. We need to show them how God provided them with food for heaven. We need to show them his miraculous works that were given freely from every from one generation to the next. We have to tell them that because the next generation needs to know those stories. It'll help them again to orient their life, to expect God and know when to expect God to show up. See, we need to teach our, our next generation that's what they hope in, is God showing up. Like, they need to know how to go to school with hope, with hoping in God. Like, they need to learn how to repent of sin. They need to learn how to go to bed hoping in God. They need to learn how to go on a date hoping in God. They need to learn how to suffer, how to cry, how to walk through pain, all hoping in God. And they won't know unless we teach them what God has done. Because if we just look over our past, our personal history, we can kind of see those of us following Christ when God shows up. Those stories passed on, even personal, like, hey, this is what I went through. These are the things that we share with the next generation. And third, we teach them what God has said. In verse 5, it reads, he established a rule in Jacob. He set up a law in Israel. He commanded our, our ancestors to make his deeds known to their descendants. So we teach them about his laws and his commandments, and we help them, the, this next generation, understand that God's word must be at the center of their life, right? Amen. Yes, we strive to teach our kids all kinds of things, playing football, soccer, basketball, like ballet, softball. All those things, they're not bad, but we can't teach them those things without teaching them something that will last forever and stand through eternity. God's word is the only thing that our kids and the next generation will be able to stand on a billion years from now. 
And the, matter, the truth of the matter is, is that everything else will burn up. God's word is the only thing that we can stand on through eternity. And that's why it must be passed on to the next generation. Now, here's the challenge, right? Is that we can teach the generation who God is, what he has done, what he has said. But with high challenge comes this, it's this chance for failure, right? It's this chance for to be like a sense of danger, really. High challenge, there's usually always a sense of danger. And the danger for Christians, for Christ followers, is that we will become either ignorant or silent. That's the two risks that we have. Now, an, ig- an ignorant person, I'm sure we know a lot of those, not in this building, but just in other circles of life. An ignorant person, they, they lack knowledge, right? That's what they do, and they just don't know what to do. Now, I have an impressive amount of ignorance. I was pausing for an amen from my mom back there, but I do. I've been married for almost 20 years now, so every once in a while I have conversations that highlight this fact. I I I found myself in one of these conversations a couple nights ago when my wife, um, she was uh, having this wonderful conversation about Excel. So I believe my wife dreams in Excel. She's very organized. I'm not. I don't even know how to open Excel. Um, and she's talking about all this document that she put up, and then she was mentioned this thing called a pivot table. And she said, you know what a pivot table is, right? I was like, yeah, it's a table that people <laughs> pivot on. I, I don't know what a pivot table is. You know, it's just like these are the ignorant things, that, the things I'm ignorant to. There's a long list of them. And the, the reality is, is we have those lists too, right? Those things that we just know nothing about. But an ignorant person towards the things of God is that they don't know God and they don't know his commands and they don't really care to know. And that would be in the category of ignorant. But some of us here today, we're not ignorant. We're seeking God. We are following his commands. We're striving to know him. But we're taking all of these things that have invested in, been invested in us and we're hoarding it. We're not opening our mouth. See, we, we come to church only to learn, only to receive. We don't invest in others. And we've chosen to be silent. And we feed ourselves, but we're starving the next generation. That's what, it, that's what happens when we're silent. Now, being ignorant, being silent, they're easy things to do, right? But what are the implications to the next generation if we're ignorant and we're silent? God did not call us to pass on ignorance and silence to the next generation. If we, we have to turn from ignorance. We have to turn from silence. We have to open our mouths. We have to shake off these biases that we have of, pa- of other people that will hide the glorious truths to the next generation. We must teach, we must speak of the wonders of God. Now, up to this point, I've been talking this entire time about how the older generation needs to invest in the next generation. But I know that, that both are true, right? That both generations need each other. The older needs, the, the younger needs the next, and vice versa. 
But I, I think that um, we kind of have it in our minds that the gap is just really wide between the two. Now, I, I really think that we might be the same kind of difference. I don't think it's as wide as we think it is. Let me, let me uh, give you an example. Let's just look at the teenagers of today compared to the teenagers in the 1950s, all right? So here's what was going on in the 1950s. I know none of y'all were there. Um, but actually, it's the 1950s when the, when the word teenager was first coined. That was not a term used prior. And um, so parents had no previous experience with the rebellion that they were seeing in their teenagers. Um, and there was actually a lack of understanding on both sides as to why they did not understand each other. And this largely was brought on by the introduction of a new style of music called rock and roll. That's right. With rock and roll came a new language, came a new style, came new fashion. And little by little, like the parents didn't know what to do with this. Does that sound familiar at all? I mean, we can say, yeah, there's a huge gap, but we've walked in similar shoes. There's the same kind of difference. We can build similarities to shorten that gap. So just to prove this, let's, let's play a little game, right? So I have come up with some words. I did not come up with these words, so that, that's not a true statement. I got some teenagers to give me some words that they're using today because I had no idea what they were. And then I've taken some of those words and some words from the 1950s that the teenagers used. And let's guess if we can, guess which time frame this word came from. All right, what's our first word? Dolly. Any guesses? 50s. That's right. Do we have the definition? A cute girl. Dolly. There you go. What's the next word? Silk. Today? All right, let's see what it's from. All right, it's today someone who does way too much for someone they have a crush on. Don't be simping. I don't know if I use that in the right context or not. All right, what's the next word? Finesse. Any guesses? All right, we're... What time frame? Today, trick someone to get, get what you want. Gotcha. <laughs> All right, what's next? Bash ears. 50s or today? All right, let's see it. Talk too much, 50s. There you go. Do we have another one? We have a couple more. Drip. Today, let's see, what is it? That's right, your outfit is very nice. Adam looking drippy, man. (laughs) All right, I think we have one more. Bird dog. All right, let's see where it's from. Someone who tries to steal your girlfriend, a term (laughs) used in the 50s. There you go. I say all that to just bring out the point that we have commonalities. We have to look to capitalize on those commonalities to bridge the gap between us so that we can invest the gospel in the next generation. God's story of redemption moves forward when we walk hand in hand with the next generation. 
And to show that, uh, I want to bring up some friends that I've invited on the stage. Um, if you'll come up now, Mr. E.J., Brylin, Jessica. Aren't you glad I didn't just name volunteers here? All right. So my point in this is um, I wanted you all to see uh, what it's like when our church works together hand in hand with each generation walking beside each other. Now, just to set the context of this conversation, um, Jessica, this is Jessica Roth, E.J. Goodrum, and Brylin Haythorne. All right, so we have uh, Jessica, who has two, two uh, boys that are in student ministry. E.J. volunteers within the student ministry, and then Mr. Brylin is a part of the student ministry. So what I want to do, I'm just going to ask a few questions, and I'm going to hone in on one, um, one event that we had uh, this past a few months ago, and Disciple Now, because they were all a part of that in some way. And what I hope these questions highlight is just the way that, um, the way that we all work together to invest, all right? So I'm going to start with Jessica. So Jessica, you have, oh yeah, y'all do need a mic, sorry, thank you. There you go. That's why Chuck was yelling at me to grab a mic. Um, so, Jessica, you have, you have two students that went to Dean now. As you prepared, um, or as they prepared, or you prepared for them, whatever, what were the hopes that you um, hoped for your kids that they would gain spiritual depths of God while they were there at Disciple Now? Well, um, I think... Our hope and prayer for our kids has always been for them to love the Lord with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. So we're constantly looking for opportunities as parents where we can put them in an environment where they can do that. And we knew that D-Now would be an amazing opportunity for that. But not only that, for them to connect with other kids their age and see other students who were also passionate about God. All right. Thank you for that. You can pass it to EJ. So EJ, as you're preparing to for this D-Now weekend, which is just a weekend where you spend intensive time with students and, and teaching them, what were some of the obstacles that you had to overcome? Maybe mentally, like, I, I don't know how I'm going to leave my kids, because I know that, that you, you have a full-time job. Sometimes you work on weekends, too. I don't know if I'm competent enough. All these things, what was going through your mind that might keep you from there? And then a follow-up to that is, but when you got there, what did you see God do through you? Yeah, no, great question. Uh, obstacles galore, excuses even more, if I had to be honest. Um, for my wife and I, it is a uh, mutual investment into the next. It's, it's not just me doing it. It's not just her. Um, you know, we have three small children. I would honestly say that my job investing into sixth graders is easier than managing a five, four, and two-year-old. And so my wife, I would say, has the hardest job. And that, that's a huge um, investment uh, for, for both of us, honestly. Um, Time-wise, you know, I work two weekends out of the month if I'm sacrificing uh, another weekend, that leaves one weekend for me and my family. I mean, that's, yes, it's an excuse. It's a valid excuse, but I'm investing into the next. You know, if, if, if I'm working, there's really no um, investment into the kingdom of God. And so we don't necessarily see it as a burden that we don't want to carry. 
Um, we view it as if Christ sacrificed his life for us, what should we do for him? You know, is sacrificing a weekend worth his life for, for me, for, for these kiddos? And, and we're like, absolutely. So hands down, there's obstacles, there's excuses. Um, but it's kind of like waking up, not wanting to go to the church. I don't know if anybody of y'all like experienced that. But when you get to church and you leave, you're like, man, I'm so glad I went. And that's honestly how every time we serve, my wife and I, that's how we feel every single time. It's like, man, I'm so glad we signed up for that. Yes, it was an obstacle, but we're, we're very glad that we're able to hopefully progress the kingdom of God. All right. Thank you for that, um, Pastor Brylin. And I love that because that's so, uh, what EJ said is applicable across the board, right? Time is the one thing that we can't get back. And it's probably one of the hardest things to sacrifice and to, to give up in investing in the next. So, Brylin, you were a student. You were a part of D-Now. Tell me about um, maybe a, an example or just spiritual truths that you gained um, in Disciples and D-Now weekend. I feel like before I went to that D-Now, like I was saved, but I thought like, oh, I always have God, like, I'm fine. Whatever I do, like, he'll forgive me for. But, like, the more we're in small group and the more, like, worship even and in the sermons, God kind of revealed himself saying, like, like, you're my soldier. Like, I don't want you doing all these bad things. Not that they were bad, but they just went against the kingdom of God. I don't want you doing these and then, like, going out and not spreading my word or not going out missing opportunities to, like, He's running after me as much as I'm running after him. Like, I might read my Bible and realize, like, I'm getting closer to God, and he's just right beside me. But, no, he wants me to do more. Like, he wants me to go share my testimony with people. He wants me to tell people how D-Now was and, like, tell them to come and just, just get off my tail. Just go and serve him. Stop sitting around. And, like, I'm wasting time every day that I sit there and do something that doesn't advance the kingdom of God, but it just, like, pauses it. And I feel like my leader, he told me that you're never sitting still. You're either going forwards or backwards. And every time I find myself not doing that, I'm like, man, I feel like I'm growing farther and farther from God, and that's something I don't want to do. And through that D now, it just showed me how much he loves me and how much he wants me to be his disciple and that just wants me, makes me want to get closer and closer to him every day. Amen. Thank you. Did y'all catch that? A parent's expectation, or a, not an expectation, well, it could be an expectation because that is what the church is for, to partner with parents like Jessica and her husband John in discipling their children. She has these expectations. They can't happen without volunteers overcoming barriers to get there to invest. But did you hear the outcome? I remember what I was talking about a minute ago that what would happen in 50 years if we just stopped doing this? Well, over time, expectations would stop. There would be no volunteers and there would be no stories. It's just a great picture of the church and how together we walk hand in hand. We all have our role and responsibilities to do. So um, I'll ask you this, EJ. Just briefly share with me maybe one, um, one instance that you had while you're investing in students where you just walked up, you felt ill-equipped, but then you saw God show up. 
Yeah, so we're, we're given a curriculum for those of us who invest in the youth. Um, and, and, and with sixth graders particularly, they can go one or two ways. You know, we're either going to uh, stay on track or we're going to go chase some squirrels. Um, but but there's, there's also some topics, too, that like predestination, for example. That's, that's a big word. It's a big topic. Trying to teach that to young kiddos is, is pretty difficult. Um, but God has given me, in my experiences, um, an, an ability to, to talk to some of these sixth graders. And I said, how many of y'all play video games? You know, most of their hands go up. They're all excited. I'm like, well, Mr. EJ plays video games, too. And they laugh, they chuckle, and I don't understand what's so funny. But anyway... Uh, what I tell them, it's, it's like you're playing this game and you have certain tasks that you have to accomplish that you're going to go through. I said, that's, that's kind of like what predestination is for, you know, that God has for us in our life, is that there are certain tasks that we're going to do, whether or not we want to do them or not. We will follow that path. Now, yes, we're granted the ability of free will. We can go and do sidetracks. We can go get this job. We can go chase this, you know, young lady. I said, but we will go through God's plan for our life, whether or not we want to. And he's going to equip us one way or another. And so that's, that's one of the way that God has used my experiences um, to teach a, a rather difficult topic to these sixth graders who, who can now understand. Yeah, it's just awesome how God comes in in those moments and helps us navigate hard conversations. You know, it's, it's almost like God knows what he's doing. Like he will send us. He tells us to be obedient when we are. He comes through. Um, Brylin, uh, what would you, a quick question, what would you say to the person out there that is leaning towards, like, I want to invest. I want to, I want to, to get plugged in in student ministry, but they just feel like that they're just not equipped. Like, for some reason, they feel like they're incompetent to do that. What would you say to them? Really just do it. Hey. I mean, that's the simplest answer because Amen. Like, you could feel so unequipped, but you hit a quick prayer and God's got you. And... Like, my leader ever since fifth grade and now, like, looking back on it, I don't want to judge, but I don't think he was equipped. But now I'm like, he was more than equipped because God spoke through him, and he spoke to me. And it doesn't matter, like, how old, how young you are, because God uses everybody. And just do it. <laughs> That's the least I could say. God has you, and he's going to use you in a way that you just can't imagine. Amen. And see, that's why we need the younger generation, right, is to, like, keep this attitude of, yeah, let's storm the hill. Like, let's just, all we got to do is just do it. Like, we need that freshness uh, on us every day. Thank you for, for that answer. So, Jessica, um, one, one last question for you. Um, can you explain to us this morning what it means uh, from a parent's perspective, to know that there is uh, the student ministry to partner with you in discipling your boys? Um, that's hard to explain because it's a priceless thing. It's um, <clears throat> such a relief for us as parents to know that our kids are going into an environment where people are pointing them to the truth and encouraging them and being kind to them in a world that's very unkind to them. And so um, it's priceless, it's vital for us as parents to, to have that resource. And we're so grateful to all of you who have plugged in to our kids and um, who have in the past invested in the younger generation because it really does make a difference as parents, especially because 
our kids are at the age right now where they're a little bit allergic to us. <laughs> and, um, and so they're looking for another source for advice, and they're looking for someone else to pour into their life. And we want those people to be people that are pointing them to the Lord. Amen. All right. Thank you for that answer. Uh, last quick question for all of y'all, and this is, I am going to ask one sentence if you stretch it. No one's going to. No one's going to get mad at you, but if you're going to encourage someone to invest in the next but could only use one sentence, what would it be? Maybe two sentences. Please help me as a teen parent. <laughs> Give it a try. If you don't like it, you can find a different place of service. Do it. <laughs> yeah. All right. Give him a hand clap. Thank you all so much. You can put that back there. Thank you all so much. All right, so I hope that you caught the picture that I've been trying to describe this morning. And um, I, I want us to see our reward for all of this, and you saw it in Brylin, is that it's, it's found in verses 7 through 8. And you can read that, but basically it's saying that when we take in time to invest in the next generation, we ensure that the next generation of students, their hearts belong to God. Isn't that what we want? Like, isn't that what we want is for them to live their days knowing and obeying the commandments of God. We want them to have a heart that does not turn away, that knows what it means to be faithful and steadfast warriors in God's redemptive plan. Now, in conclusion, I told you we were going to have to wrestle with a question, and it is this. We must ask ourselves, when our life here is over, what will, it, what will it be? What will we wish that we had done but we hadn't done? Like in, in terms of character-building choices, like why not ask God to empower us to strengthen that gap into what we wish we would have done at the end of our lives versus what we did do? See, God's show of redemption will go on. It will not be thwarted. We don't, he doesn't need us. He doesn't have to have us. But what other way is more exciting than joining the creator of the universe in his grand plan of redemption? I can think of no other way to leverage my life. In fact, I... I love C.S. Lewis's words, and I'm, I'm behind him on this. This is how I've been uh, striving to live my life when he says this. He says, my, ho my, hope is, my hope is that when I die, all of hell rejoices that I'm out of the fight. Like, that's my heart, is that I want to run head on into this story, and I want the gates of hell to be like, finally, we don't have to worry about him anymore. I'm going to close this in prayer, and I just pray that you would continue um, to, to pray and ask God, how will you have me leverage my life um, to invest in the next? If you would like to take steps to that end, please go to the, um, to the next steps room uh, right across um, the mall area. And um, also, if, if you're hearing about this story for the first time and you have questions on what it is to follow Jesus, turn to someone next to you and ask them. Um, 
find someone in your aisle, or you can go to the next step um, room as well. Let's pray, and then we'll be dismissed. God, I thank you so much that you did not leave us in ruin. Like you did not let the crown jewel of your creation slip into utter darkness, but you came for us. You not only came for us and saved us, but you redeemed us in a way that helped us to partner with you to now we're on this mission and living this story with you. And God, I pray that you would protect this congregation from complacency. God, may we get sick and tired of making excuses. God, I pray that we would know what it is to leverage all of our days to accomplish what you have put us on this earth to accomplish, which is passing what you have invested in us through others to the next generation. God, I thank you for all that you've done and all that you will do. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You're dismissed.